this is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santopadre, and we're once again recording at Nutmeg with our engineer, Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is a nine-time Emmy winner and one of the most prolific and successful comedy writers and TV producers of the past six decades. Credits include The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, The Dean Martin Show, The Betty White Show, Phyllis, Amen, Dear John, The Martin Short Star of the Associates, and a little program called The Mary Tyler Moore Show. He also co-created two of the most successful situation comedies of all time, The Cosby Show and Taxi. He began his long career working with the late, great Dick Gregory and would go on to work with and write for just about everyone, including Bob Hope, Richard Pryor, Steve Martin, George C. Scott, Henry Fonda, Madeline Kahn, Albert Brooks, and Andy Kaufman, as well as former podcast guests John Amos, Stuart Margolin, Dee Wallace, Dick Van Dyke, and Amy Heckling. In addition to those nine Emmys we mentioned, he also won three Golden Globe Awards and a Peabody. And in 2000, he received the Writers Guild of America Lifetime Achievement Award. His new book, co-written with former podcast guest Ed Asner, is called The Grouchy Historian. An old-time lefty defends our Constitution against right-wing hypocrites and nutjobs. Please welcome the creative mind behind some of the funniest hours in television history and a man who once provided the voice of a talking orangutan. Ed Weinberger. That's some research you guys did. <laughs> I don't remember half of those credits myself, but we go deep, Ed. I'll okay. Be- before we go on to anything else, I think it may have been on, on Thick of the Night, Alan Thick's show, or something. I had worked with three orangutans. They used to be an act. I forget what they call themselves. One of those orangutans went on to be the star of the show Mr. Smith, where it was part of the show was an actual orangutan. The other part was like a a obviously phony animatronic puppet uh, orangutan. Bill Cosby saw me on uh, Thick of the Night and recommended me to do a guest spot on Mr. Smith, and I auditioned and didn't get it. <laughs> you auditioned for The Voice? 
I no, uh, just a uh, guest appearance. Oh. You would have been a great voice or a guest appearance. I don't remember much about that show. I blanked it out. I, <laughs> as, much, as much as you can blank out a show, I blanked that out. Now, tell us about as much as you remember about this show. All right. Well, I'll tell you one story, uh, which I haven't told maybe ever. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> it's an exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we were shooting at Paramount, and we had uh, Mr. Smith, who had been in a movie uh, prior to that. Had been in oh, he was in the Eastwood movie. He was in the Eastwood yeah. movie. Thank right, you. right, yeah. right. Oh, Eastwood. any which way you can. Yeah, CJ, yeah. CJ yeah. the, yeah. the orangutan. Yeah, CJ. And uh, the trainer also had a second orangutan who was not as well trained. Uh, that we used occasionally as the dumb brother, because Mr. Smith could talk through a through a uh, uh, a uh, an accident in the lab. He became a genius and could talk. <laughs> right. And, well, it was a political satire, right? But the brother, the brother remained an orangutan. So we had this is the story, this the the episode. They. Uh, the Russians were going to try to kidnap Mr. Smith, uh, who had secrets, uh, uh, nuclear secrets, whatever that was. But they made a mistake, and they captured the dumb orangutan. That was the episode. <laughs> so we had two actors who were playing the Russian kidnappers. And uh, one was Joe Montaigne, by the way. The other, oh, wow. The other, I forget. Anyway, the second actor was afraid of the orangutan, the dumb orangutan. And the <laughs> trainer said, look, if you, you can't show fear. He's not going to hurt you, but you can't show fear. Well, the actor showed fear. They were in the back seat together. Montaigne was driving. We were shooting late at night at, at Paramount. And suddenly... The orangutan, the dumb orangutan, not CJ, began to sexually abuse the second actor. <laughs> oh, my God. In the back of the car. So uh, we had to stop shooting. And the second actor, sort of smelling an insurance uh, policy deal here, claimed he had been injured and said he had to be taken to the emergency room. So I went with him to the emergency room. And when we got to the nurse, the nurse said, uh, what seems to be the problem here? And I said, well, he was, he was sexually attacked by an orangutan uh, outside of... Paramount Studios. <laughs> and I'm not sure if I remember the look on her face, but <laughs> anyway, we began to fill out the fill out the forms. And so that's one of the events of that of that shooting was that at four in the morning I found myself in an emergency room with an actor filling out a an orangutan. Uh, a sexual attack by an orangutan. <laughs> That's hilarious. And 
So if you show an orangutan fear, it will rape you. I, I don't. I don't know much about orangutans. And, <laughs> and it was an idea that I probably should have never had. And if I and if I had, I should have stopped myself immediately from going. Uh, forward, but when I told people about it, they said, "Oh, this is a hit show. This is a number one hit show." <laughs> and so I continued, uh, and uh, from one disaster to another with that show. So yeah, but the cast was good: Stuart Margolin, who we mentioned, and also the very funny Leonard Fry. Leonard Fry was great. Stuart yeah. was great, and and so was the orangutan. Uh, but it, it just it just met with one one problem after the other. And I remember giving an interview for TV Guide where I think the orangutan was on the cover that week. And uh, I said, well, you know, CJ, he's worked with Clint Eastwood. He's worked, you know, he's, uh, he's terrific. And uh, he, uh, he always hits his marks. He does what he's I got calls from the, I got calls from the actor saying, how could you, you praise CJ and orangutan and say nothing about us? And, and so, there was always a problem with that show, and mercifully, it was uh, canceled. I think in the first, uh, the first year. I believe so. And, and yeah. like I said, there was the real orangutan, and then other scenes was the most phony. Oh, fake yeah. uh, man-made orangutan. Yeah, well, we we had trouble with that. That was a big giant puppet that never worked, and <laughs> we had two puppeteers within it that never worked. Please, you're. <laughs> I will say one last thing about Leonard Fry. Not one He's, of the classiest shows I've ever done. But no, it's just Gilbert brings it up because he had a connection to it. I would have. Uh, I don't know if I could actually watch one right now, but uh, if if we ever finish the one about the uh, the two Russians kidnapping the dumb brother, I certainly might be able to to watch it with a couple of drinks. <laughs> Leonard Fry was in Fiddler on the Roof, Gilbert. He was the tailor. Oh, you know wow. that You know that actor? Very funny guy. Wow. And very, very memorable in the Ted ba- Baxter's famous broadcasting school episode well, of uh, the Mary uh, Tyler Moore show. We worked uh, together on a show called Best of the West. where he. Oh, was, yes. 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 John Marcus I, said, ask, ask Ed about Best of the West. That's where I, uh, that's where I first met Leonard. And um, now you traveled with Bob Hope. You wrote for Bob Hope a I lot. I did, yes. And, well, I went and, a lot, but I, I, there was one year where I, I worked for Bob Hope, yes. And you would travel on the plane to, like, Vietnam and places like that? I actually, let me, t- I'll tell you my Vietnam story. I actually uh, went to Vietnam on a Christmas show I think Frank looked up the year, but we don't have yeah, to give we, it. We don't have to. Okay, <laughs> I won't give up the year. <laughs> we don't need to. We don't need to do every year here, please. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Let me tell you my Bob Hope story. Go ahead. So, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I have a few Bob Hope stories, but this is uh, so we. This was living out of fantasy in a way because uh, growing up, uh, I had. I had obviously uh, been very interested in, and listened to and, and watched Bob Hope and had heard about his, uh, his USO tours and so forth. And uh, so when Mort Lockman asked me to go with him, Mort Lockman was Bob's uh, head writer, to go with him as his writing partner, 
uh, we went to Hawaii and we went to Guam. And then we flew into, we couldn't stay in Saigon that year because the hotel had been bombed. So we stayed in Bangkok and we took helicopters from Bangkok into into the heart of Vietnam. So the first the first trip we made from Bangkok was to the Da Nang Marine Base in the heart of Vietnam. And this is, I have to remember, this is the, the war is, is going on full fury. And uh, after the monologue, I only worked on the monologue, and after the monologue, which was different for each base, uh, I, I didn't see, I had already seen the rest of the show. I left, I walked out of the base, uh, and stood on the side of the road, and I smoked my cigar. And as I'm standing there behind me, I can hear the laugh and the laughs and the music coming from the show at the base, about uh, maybe 200 yards from me. I see in the distance a convoy, a military convoy, flatbed trucks, armaments, troops, uh, machine guns, anti-aircraft. Uh, guns, just maybe a truck convoy, 20 trucks long, winding its way down this dirt road. And it comes, the first truck comes right in front of me and stops. And the, the uh, officer or the driver, he had, a, he had a guy next to him, leans out of the window and he says, excuse me, can you tell me how to get to Wang Chi? And I say, I don't know how to tell you this, but I just got in from Beverly Hills <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> and they laugh with each They laugh. I laugh. We wave goodbye, and the truck moves, and the convoy moves on. And I said, right then and there, we can never win this war. If they are stopping and asking directions of a comedy writer— <laughs> Working, working for Bob Hope, uh, and they're lost, and I'm standing here. This is unwinnable, and we should get out right now. Unfortunately, nobody asked my opinion, and we went on for another another five, seven, right. God knows how many more years. So they should have asked. Yes, that's, that's, uh, that was my one Vietnam story. You, uh, you, you went down there with Jill St. John. It was Don Ho and Charlie Pride and Jim Neighbors. Which I found fascinating, and and uh, and the gold diggers, and the gold diggers. And okay, the go- <laughs> <laughs> now, gold now here's the story, the Bob Hope story. I heard as far as those Vietnam shows went, that he would always hire an actress or dancer or singer who he wanted to have sex with, and when they were out there, if they weren't obliging he would threaten to leave them in Vietnam. <laughs> I, I, I personally know nothing about that. I, I do not, I don't, I don't comment on, on the personal lives of the people I worked with. And, and I never, and, and I know that he did, he was what we called in those days uh, a womanizer, uh, and uh, I'm sure he 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 had somebody on that trip that uh, that he may have been interested in. 
Leaving them in Vietnam, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> was, was Jerry Colonna along and all the no, all no, the no. Colonna was World War Two. Okay. <laughs> well, he was wow. still alive. He was still alive. He was still alive, but he didn't. He didn't. Uh, Jerry Colonna didn't go with him on on the, uh-huh. on the Vietnam trip. Uh, I remember. Uh, I usually sort of hung out with Les Brown, not him, but some of the guys in the band. Sure. And uh, and. One one afternoon, leaving after a show, I accidentally got into the same helicopter, military helicopter with Hope, and he was surrounded by by brass, military brass, big, I mean, four-star generals, three-star generals, admirals, and, and there was a couple of gold diggers in that helicopter, and we, and there were young, young, uh, Airmen with machine guns circling, you know, going back and forth over the uh, as we ascended. We got up about two hundred feet, and the helicopter then slowly came back down to the ground, and you could see sort of the blood draining from the generals' faces because nobody knew what was going on or why we were going back to the, or we were going back down. And one of the, I, saw, I was watching the generals very closely, and uh, he sent he sent a lieutenant up to the pilot to find out what was going on. And what had happened was one of the gold diggers had left her camera back at the base and had gone up to the pilot herself, sort of flirting with him, and asked him if she could. If he would mind going back down to get <laughs> oh jeez to get the camera. <laughs> Now the generals were sort of committed. They didn't want to. They didn't want to panic and say no. We're getting so they we we were now in a very tense situation in a battle zone, while we got this young woman's uh, brownie. It turned out what an instamatic brownie, brought it back, and the helicopter took off. But for a minute, we thought we were under attack, and it was just a gold digger who had left her camera behind. That's funny. Hello, this is Villages, and we will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing collateral podcast right after these. Gilbert and Frank, we can't live without you. 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 And now back to the show. What did you tell me on the phone, Ed? I thought Gilbert would find this interesting, that Hope used to isolate the writers? Well, he didn't isolate the writers, but we never... I was never in a writer's room with Hope. I see. Uh, in other words, everybody worked individually. We turned our material into Mort, and then Mort assembled it and gave it to Hope. Hope only dealt with one or with with Mort really, and the writers we we worked separately, uh, which was true of a lot of. I mean, true of Johnny too. We we had writers' meetings, but. We didn't write together. Everybody did monologue or stand-up or one-liners by themselves. And mm-hmm. then Hope assembled the monologues himself. Uh, there was one other story. Uh, 
when I was alone with Hope two times. And, of course, I was in awe and, and, and a little uncomfortable in his presence. But uh, we were alone in a – and I'm, I'm not sure this where. It was, I think it was on a plane. And he turned to me, and he was – now, I think Mort had just left the room. We were in a hotel room. And Mort had just left the room, and, and Hope was agitated because Fortune 500 – had just named him one of the richest men in America with $2 billion in property in the San Fernando Valley. And Hope was outraged. And he said, I have nowhere near $2 billion. Wow, there they say. I'm, and he's looking for sympathy from me in some way. <laughs> because this is, you know, and I'm saying, I'm, a, you know, I'm making decent money, but I'm not in. <laughs> Not in that world. And I have to feign this outrage. I have to say, well, yeah, you should write a, maybe call your lawyer or something. And I'm trying to chime in here and be enthusiastic. And Hope's big problem was that they overestimated his wealth by a billion dollars. Unbelievable. And, and I'm saying, yeah, yeah, well, what a terrible thing. And which reminds me of one other moment with Bob Hope. I... It was the Northridge earthquake, which you may or may not remember, but a pretty big earthquake. Oh, in the nineties. In the nineties. Yeah. And uh, I, I somehow I was, <laughs> I, I I'm not sure about the dates, but anyway, there was an earthquake. I had owned a property that I was talked into by my business manager at the time, and had bought a property on the epicenter of this earthquake, which was totally destroyed. So. Casually, at one point, knowing Bob Hope owned all of the San Fernando Valley, I said, uh, do you have any damage in the earthquake? He said, no, absolutely not. My one property was totally destroyed. He owned, every, he owned acres and, and not, a, not a scratch. What, was and it? Go ahead, how, go. how dangerous were those Vietnam trips? I think they were dangerous. I think. There was, except that I, I think it would have been a very bad move on, on, on anybody's part. I guess the Viet Cong or the Vietnamese to to go after Hope. That would be a PR nightmare. So looking back, I, I assume that they did not want to do anything, but they, but easily they could have because I remember uh, dining with the in the officers' mess at one point in Vietnam, and I noticed that all the all the waiters in the kitchen help were Vietnamese. And I said to whoever was my escort at the time, I said, how could you tell the good Vietnamese from the bad Vietnamese? And he said, we can't. And by the way, there's a good lesson in war. If you do, cannot recognize your enemy, do not go to war in that country. But I said, so that anybody in that kitchen could be a sympathizer to the Viet Cong and could poison us uh, immediately. And he said, absolutely. So that was another insight into into Vietnam at the time and the war. Uh, to Hope's credit, he was quite remarkable in certain ways. Whatever, <clears throat> excuse me, whatever you thought of his politics, he would go into, into hospitals. I was with him on one of those hospital trips. And he would go into wounded uh, soldiers and sailors and Marines and just go up to them and just say, hey, where are you from? He'd do a joke. He would move on. He'd shake hands. 
I, at a certain point, had to turn around, go outside, and 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 just gasp for air and try not to get sick. The the injuries were so horrific. So, uh, to Hope's credit, he you know whatever his motivation was, Nielsen's ratings, money. Uh, he he provided a great service because nobody else was going out there and entertaining those guys. So uh, it was quite a learning experience. And as to danger, I think it was there, but I think he felt uh, protected and nobody was going to get him. Was it creatively uh, satisfying uh, in any way yet for a young comedy writer since you'd grown, he was a comedy hero, to have him do your material? Yeah. Who... <laughs> If you grew up listening to Bob, of course, and, that's what and, I mean. And one of the great American comedians, whatever you think about his, again, as I said, sure, his political points of view. Uh, yeah, it, it is. It's always it's always amazing, and, and I don't think it's, it's stopped being amazing that <clears throat> you write something one day and then it comes out of the mouth of one of your heroes the next, and, and it's it's quite. Special and I think yeah, it, it always will be. Yeah, yeah. We, we just give the give our listeners a little backdrop too, a little backstory. I mean, you're from Philadelphia. You didn't have a you didn't come from a show business family. You were working in Bloomingdale's. My father was a, your, my father was a butcher, so that was right. not as far from show business. Right, I that's what I mean. <laughs> and you found you, 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 you found your way into comedy uh, while you were you were working in retail, and you found your way to Dick Gregory. Well. Uh, what I I was at Bloomingdale's. I was in uh, uh, wallpaper and area rugs. I was a uh, district supervisor, I was floor walker, I had a little white carnation, mm-hmm. and I I started as Christmas help. And uh, during the day, I wrote jokes. And at night, after the after I left uh, after the store closed, I would bring these jokes to whatever uh, comic was playing in New York at the time. So I had. Uh, Taken jokes to and been rejected uh, by Jackie Carter, Jackie Mason, Jackie Vernon. All the Jackies. (laughs) (laughs) Not Jackie Gale? (laughs) I'm sure Jackie Gale, there's another Jackie that I'm I'm forgetting. (laughs) (laughs) And and then Dick Gregory, I think it was the Blue Angel, came in and I wrote jokes for him and brought him material. And And, and you traveled with him. We traveled together. We were roommates, so to uh, speak. And uh, and as he got more and more involved in civil rights, I found myself more and more involved uh, less in the show business and less in the joke writing and involved in civil rights. I, yeah, would, which- I was down in Miss. I was in Mississippi. I was giving turkeys in Alabama. I'm not sure I could tell the difference between the two states, but... <laughs> Even now, probably not. But I was I was there uh, sometimes on my own doing work for him, and and uh, sometimes with him. Uh, I, I remember once there are a lot of stories from that from that time period. But the I remember once at a church, a small black church, where he was preaching at, and I w- it was freezing cold. It was Mississippi, I think, and freezing cold in the winter. And they had no heating system. They had these little uh, room heaters that were lined up along the side of the wall. So to to get warm, I I stood in the back next to one of the heaters, 
And after a while, there was a, sort of a smell. People in the last four rows looked back at me. And uh, I was going up in flames. I had, I, my raincoat had gotten too close to the heater and had caught fire. And now the, the half of the church had to rush back and put me out before Dick Gregory <laughs> wow. could, go, could go. So that's one of the, one of those anecdotes. So uh, I was at the March with Washington. I met, uh, wow. uh, I met Medgar Evers. Uh, I, I met Malcolm X and, uh, uh, and many people involved in the civil rights movement. It was a very special time because we were on the right side and we were doing good work. And uh, it meant a lot to me and, and, and I think uh, changed me in a way because I saw things that I, that I think most of us don't see and never would see if I weren't, uh, weren't under very special circumstances like that. It's an interesting journey. What did you see? What kind of things? Well, I, when I was in Mississippi, I saw another country. I did recognize it. It, it was it, it, the, the uh, segregation. That was a time when, you know, uh, black, you couldn't stay at the same hotel. You couldn't really eat at the same restaurant. I saw, uh, I saw the outright cruelty of, of people down there towards people that are of another color. Uh, and I saw, I saw the African American uh, standing up to that, in a, finally standing up to it, and 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 fighting for for rights that were that should have been theirs without that. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's, uh, I you know I I, I remember. It, I remember once we were giving out food in, in again, could have been Alabama, could have been Mississippi, uh, and a group of uh, really, I guess you would say rednecks pulled up, a truck of rednecks pulled up, and I had wandered off, I not given to heavy lifting, I had stopped pulling out the food from the truck, I was just standing on the side smoking. And uh, they came up to me as a as a fellow white person, and they said, "What are they?" And they used you know they used the word, uh, "What are they doing?" They didn't say they, and uh, I said, "Beats the hell out of me." And I sort of inched towards their side of things and watched uh, sharing cigarettes with them. So I, I was capable of switching sides when I thought that I, I was under some physical <laughs> duress. But, but uh, uh, again, I think I had a unique view of the civil rights movement, a comedy writer working for Dick Gregory yeah. uh, during, that, during a time in our country where, uh, uh, of uh, special significance. And it's interesting, too, because that he turned out to be the comic of all the comics you were going and you were giving material to people, you look back on that and think that journey obviously would not have happened. If I had, had, not, if it had, had been Jackie not. Gale, no. Well, I mean, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or any of those people. It's had, just, it been it's, any, it's, had it been any of the Jackies, no. <laughs> right. It's funny how it worked out. Jackie what, Mason. That was the one Jackie we forgot. Oh, okay. Jackie Mason. It's right. funny that, that this, this is the comic that accepts your material and it winds up changing your life. Changed my life, yes. And yeah. I was and, forever indebted to him. 
And good get, man. Getting back to regular show business, uh, you used to write for Johnny Carson. Yes. I have very few stories about Johnny Carson. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, that was that was uh, that was after Gregory, and that was my first television job. And at that time, I was a mo- I was hired as a monologue writer. There were only I look at the credits now on the late night shows. They mm-hmm. look like they have thirty to forty writers does, working on those, on those shows. We we had uh, three. And uh, only two were working on monologue, and the others were working on other uh, on the what we called the five spot, with the, the part of the show where Johnny sat back down. When I started, and the show was done in New York, the monologue wasn't even seen around the country, and wasn't seen in New York. It started. Most people don't know, or, or don't even. Yeah, know that's they, interesting. Gilbert well, didn't I know that either. Yeah, yeah, that they didn't show the monologue. They the didn't. Show, they didn't that, air it. Then I was surprised. The that. show started at eleven fifteen. Uh, and the network feed didn't begin till 1130, and it started with Johnny at his desk. And so one of Johnny's uh, uh, peeves at the time, one of the early ones with the network, was that uh, somewhat after I started, uh, was, uh, you know, he wanted to start the show at 1130 and start with the monologue, which made sense. And so they, that first, that second, uh, that first 15 minutes uh, went back to the uh, local stations and he began starting the show at 11:30 with the monologue and uh, but it wasn't that way when I started when I I had been working there only uh maybe a mo- two months I think my first joke was a halloween joke the first joke that I got on my first day was halloween and in november uh President Kennedy was assassinated. And at the time, I was working on, everybody knows where they were when President Kennedy was shot. I know specifically because I was writing jokes about his trip to Texas. I was in the process of writing jokes. Wow. When we heard that he had been shot, and first I thought that was somebody was, it was a bad joke. And then, of course, you know, we, got to go home early. And I don't know where those jokes were. I often wondered what I was writing at that time. But when that happened, I, you know, we, we, I guess we, we, first we think of the tragedy of it. Now we sort of, I guess, I don't know if I'm unique this way, but I started thinking of my own situation. And I remember thinking, foolishly now, I said, well, this is the end of topical comedy. Who can write jokes about anything after this event. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no way that, you know, we're going to pick up and Johnny's going to do political humor ever again or anybody else for that matter. And uh, curiously, of course, uh, you know, within a short period of time, we were back uh, doing the same material. But I always remember Lenny Bruce's joke. On, on the on the day of Kennedy's assassination, do you remember it at all? Ah, uh, yeah, with Vaughn Meter. Yes, yeah, yes. <laughs> We've talked I about it. I think that's the great, a great, the great line. So even even on that kind of tragedy, there's there's a way of finding there's finding a joke in that. Vaughn Meter, his entire career was right, his of course. Kennedy imitation. Yes, 
and and he said, "Boy, I, I what what was that? I feel sorry for." No, no, me. no, Lenny Bruce. No, I don't think no. I don't know that Lenny Bruce ever used the words "I feel sorry yeah, for." Yeah. But I think he did say, you know, that's the end of Vaughn Meter's career. <laughs> there it goes. Yeah. I think that was his that was his opening line. Yeah. At, uh, on the day of the assassination, that was his line at a club. Uh, I think that's the end of, or not even I think. I actually got to watch Lenny Bruce in person in Chicago a few times and later in San Francisco. So that was sitting in sitting in an audience watching him was special, too. And he was right, by the way. Yes, oh, he was. was. Yes, yes. Yeah. One meter never recovered. No. Nope. And, and – uh, uh, I hate to pile on, but I met Von Meter, and he wasn't really that nice a guy, at least to me at the time. So. Oh, he had a sad life after that. Yeah, it's too bad. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind. Of, it's funny because then years later, after September 11th, there was that thing of, uh, oh, can we ever make jokes again? Yeah, I, I think there is that period of time, but you did a— you did very shortly thereafter did a joke that worked that's recalled and remembered and and uh, uh, when I read it I I said that's that that joke works it's funny and is uh, surprisingly still in good taste so I I mean to, oh. to manage all of that at once after it, and you do, know you're the first person who ever accused me of good taste. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not accusing you of good taste. I'm, I am commenting on that joke <laughs> and yeah, saying I did that and saying I did that that, that joke. Jo- well, but you're you're flirting you're flirting with 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 some serious um, you know a blowback uh, and and I think I, I don't know what the reaction was, but I think it's I think it's a great joke. I think for clarity for our listeners, you're referring to the 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 joke about the stopping off at the. At the Trade Center? Yeah. yeah. The Empire I State said, Building is what you said. Oh, the Empire right? State Building. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I screwed said the joke I up. have to fly to, I was at the U Hefner roast <laughs> that I did it. And I said, I I have to leave early tonight. I have to catch a flight to L.A. I couldn't get a direct flight. We have to make a stop at the Empire State Building. And? And? And, and everyone and, yelled too soon. Yeah, they did. <laughs> I don't know what the reaction yeah, was. I one just guy went, yelled too soon. I thought that meant I didn't take a long enough pause between the setup. <laughs> did you work with Harry Crane at the Carson show? No, I bet Harry worked on the Dean Martin show. He was. Oh, Harry worked on the Dean Martin show, yeah, too. That's where. No, no. He, that's the only that's the first and only time I met or worked with Harry. Uh-huh. And and I don't know. If your audience knows who Harry, well, he's come up on this show because Persky's talked about him as legend, legendary comedy writer. The legend, legendary even then, and uh, and and he was the old school comedy writer. He was the knife in the back kind of guy with a reputation of being of being. Uh, uh, you know, you had to watch yourself with him. He'd steal your material. He would, he would do, he would do anything to, you know, to get you fired or to. I mean, I'm not saying any of this was true, but he had this reputation, and uh, I, I do remember Harry saying to me at one time, uh, he would come into. I was working uh, with Arnie Cogan, with Arnie Cogan at the time, and Stan Daniels. We were all mm-hmm. on staff at mm-hmm. Newmark. And Harry would come into the to the to our little cubicles, and and one of the things he would say was, uh, 
You know, if I was writing with, if Shakespeare and I were in the same room, I'd break his legs. He had, <laughs> he, he had, he had this over, had this overriding confidence that he was the best ever. <laughs> and, and, and he called on Shakespeare as a comparison. And, uh, he, uh, and I, I guess you heard the story from Persky. This is what, you know, he had, there was a, there's a few famous Harry Crane stories. One is the, is the story that with Greg Garrison, when Greg Garrison told Harry that he had booked Zero Mustel. I think it was Zero Mustel. Mm-hmm. And Harry immediately went into a diatribe. He said, Harry said, you can't book, you can't book, they were considering booking service. He said, you can't book him. He doesn't go with Dean. He's Broadway. He's New York. He's the, nobody knows him. He's too fat. He's not, you know. And and Garrison cut him off and said, you know, uh, Dean loves him. I love him. We're booking him. And Harry said, wait, you didn't let me finish. <laughs> <laughs> Ed was saying it might be the origin of that joke. You know, oh, you know yes, that joke? Yes, yes. Let, let me finish. Yeah. You didn't let me f- wait. You didn't let me finish. I swear is a real story that Harry Crane, because it's it typifies Harry Crane in terms of his in, in, in the, the 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 backroom politics of of uh, of comedy writing. And wait, you didn't let me finish. Was told to me as somebody who <laughs> who. So <laughs> if it's become a joke, it started out as a true story. By, with uh, with Harry Crane. Harry Crane was, uh, and I guess Persky told the story. This is a real writer's story, if you you know that. Uh, and this is typical again of Harry Crane. They were doing, I guess, the Andy Williams, uh, an Andy Williams special. Yeah, that sounds right. And Harry had hired Persky and Denoff. Where somebody yeah. had hired Persky and Denoff, and Harry was the head writer, and Persky and Denoff were. The, the kids on the block, new kids on the block. And they had the table reading. And page four, uh, a line gets a big laugh. And Harry turns to everybody, including Andy and the producers and everybody. He says, the boys did that, points to Persky uh, and Dunno. Page eight, another big laugh. He says, you know, the boys did that too. And Persky and Denoff are thinking, as they say later, hey, Harry is in... What a great guy. He's giving us credit for these jokes. <laughs> and they're just saying, well, you know, his reputation is, is misleading. It's not true. Well, for the rest of the script, after big laugh, after big laugh, he, Harry says nothing implying that, that they never did another joke that got a laugh. And all the other jokes were his. <laughs> I played them. And it took him, it took him until about page Forty-five to realize that <laughs> Harry Harry was sinking the knife into them deeper and deeper as the, I love that. as the script went on. So that's that's Harry Crane, and he deserved a roast, which he never got. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. And you wrote for Dean Martin. Well, i i was a, I was about I was about to get fired when when Mary Tyler Moore hired me. Thank God. <laughs> I, I was not a good Dean Martin writer. I I I never really. Got a grasp of that show, <laughs> and and uh, uh, and I think if we were to look back and see the sexes of, of that, show, not saying that I wouldn't write a sexist joke if they were paying me at the time, mm-hmm. but it was, but uh, in any case, I was not. Uh, I, I was. Uh, 
I wrote, but not successfully for that show. And did you have any dealings with Dean Martin? No, there? no, no. Dean talked to Greg Harrison and talk, and and he knew Harry, but Dean never really talked to any of the of the writers. It's like the the Ted Williams, the gods don't answer postcards. I think Dean <laughs> Dean did not. <laughs> Did not look upon the staff writers as somebody he was going to he was going to talk to. It was enough just as he had walked down the hall in a tux with a drink in his hand and say, "Hey, I'm I'm working for uh, I'm working for Dean Martin." Uh, years of, by the way, uh, speaking of Dean Martin, going back uh, when I was with Dick Gregory, uh, Frank Sinatra summoned him in a way to Cal Neva. When we were, uh, Greg, uh, and I say I, uh, Greg was playing the Hungry Eye in, in San Francisco, and I was with him. And uh, he got a call. Sinatra wanted to see him at Cal Neva. So some, I forget when we went up there. We went up there together. And this was quite a, you know, quite an event for me. And so I have one Sinatra story that came out of it. But Dean was at the bar, dead drunk. And so the drinking about Dean Martin was 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 never an exaggeration. It wasn't. It was really part of a lifestyle. But uh, Frank Sinatra heard. We went in and and we were all introduced. And Frank Sinatra said, "Let's go talk." And we had to cross the casino to go into a uh, into the restaurant where where Sinatra and Gregory were going to talk, and I was going to hang out with, uh, with Sinatra's guy. And uh, as we passed the crap table, Sinatra said to the, to the, uh, to the uh, croupier, I'm trying to find the word for the guy who rolls the dice in a, in a yeah. crap table, and he says, uh, put uh, 10,000 on the pass line, on pass, and let me know what happens when I come back. And I thought that was the coolest thing I had ever heard <laughs> in my life. And it came from Sinatra, 10,000, and let me know what happens when I come back. That is so, pretty cool. Yeah, I thought you couldn't. And, and so that was my the first time I ever heard Sinatra speak off stage. It's funny that you saw Dean slosh because they used to. You'd hear rumors that there was just soda or water in the glass. I don't think but so. He, no. Yeah, <laughs> that he drank. He drank. Yeah. I think he drank during the show, during right. the television show, and it was part. And, and so, you've heard uh, that, right? The booze was a pro, the, 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 the the booze was a prop. Uh, yeah, they yeah. put ginger ale. Put ginger ale or, or well, iced tea I, or something. I don't know. I he he drank. He. <laughs> I mean, I saw, I saw him, I saw him at a bar, and uh, and uh, of course, I don't know after that, and maybe you know things do tend to get exaggerated, but uh, I'm inclined to think that there was a uh, where he was really drinking. Yeah. <laughs> Since you brought up Harry Crane, it's just in, you and I talked on the phone too about Pat McCormick, another legendary comedy writer. Yeah, you know, you I said never you had a you had I a never, story about Pat. Well, I never worked with Pat, but yeah. Pat was, you know, there were always a Pat McCormick. Uh, did, you, did you meet Pat at all at any point? I never met Pat, but now should be my time to ask you the question. I've told the story a few times, and we had one guest who uh, 
who backed me up on it. Two of them. Oh, Buck, two Buck guests. Henry and Ronnie Shell. The the. <laughs> well, I'm Pat not going to con- contradict either one of them. By the way, the <laughs> Pat McCormick helicopter story. I've heard that too. I I can't vouch. <laughs> I can't vouch. I cannot vouch for it. Could you uh, tell it? Just no, so I can't I'm tell it. I don't. I don't know it that well. Well, what's but the braille? I, is there a braille story? <laughs> yes. That, well, yes. Let me tell you the story that I do have good. I do have verification because I know somebody who was in the car with him and they were driving by uh, it's the 101 freeway and on this adjacent to the freeway is the Braille Institute. This was around <laughs> one o'clock at two o'clock in the morning, one o'clock in the morning. And, and Pat McCormick says, you know, somebody says, you know, the lights are all out. And Pat says, yes, they're working late. <laughs> I didn't do that justice, but yes, they're working late tonight. And I thought that may be one of the better, because it was quick. It was impromptu. Pat was usually given to to using props. For example, you know, babies, you know, with fruit around them at the middle of a dining. I think he put his own kid at the middle of a dining room table and pulled back the silver cover. And there was his kid you know, being served up, apparently. So he, he liked props, like he, like the helicopter story and so forth. But that was one joke that I always remember because I thought it was it was witty, and it is. Yeah. And and you, you were one of the creators of Taxi, and you worked with Andy Kaufman. <laughs> yes, I and did. And that was so Fired weird. him. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I didn't fire Andy. Oh, you, you, oh, fired, no. you fired Tony. I fired Tony Clifton. I never yes. fired <laughs> I stand corrected. This is very because all right. So this is this is uh, all right. So we're getting into the weeds, comedy weeds here, so to speak. But let me tell you my. So when we hired Andy, uh, Jim Brooks and I went to see him at a club, and he was doing he was doing Tony he's doing Tony Clifton. He was doing and he was doing Andy Kaufman, and he was. And we, we loved him, and we, we wanted to find him. We tried it. We, we said, we're going to write a part for you. And his manager was George Shapiro, and we made a deal. And I, I sort of made the, the deal with him, and George and Andy said, look, we'll do the show, but we want you to write two episodes for Tony Clifton as well. And we said, okay. And... And then they said, you have to swear to us that you'll never tell anybody that Tony Clifton and Andy Kaufman are the same people. And uh, is this story going to make any sense for people who don't know Andy Kaufman? Oh, they know. Our our listeners know. All right. So I said, okay. And we had Zamuda on the show. Okay. Uh, So Zamuda, I I really didn't get to know Zamuda until later Mm -hmm. in in the taxi run. and. He was not involved in any of these negotiations or conversations. Anyway, it came the time for the Tony Clifton episode. And we wrote a part where Tony Clifton was Danny DeVito's brother come back and I forget the episode. So after the – and I told – I think I gave some speech to the cast. I said – Look, this is a very unusual guy who's coming in, but, you know, we think it'll work out. I tried to calm their nerves. Anyway, 
we did the reading. We did a, we did, uh, we did rehearsal at the first run through. It was a disaster because Tony Clifton was, and this was our first year of taxi. We're, you know, biting our nails as to pickups and things like that. So I called George and then I called Andy and I said, look, this isn't working out. He can't do the show. He he can't. And then I try to say, you know, Tony Clifton can't act. He can't. Again, right. <laughs> try to put it in terms he might accept. And Andy said to me, oh, I think I had Andy in my office. And I said, Andy, we can't do this. And he said, okay, I want you to fire me. Okay, but I want to be fired on the set tomorrow. And I said, okay, I'll fire you on the set tomorrow. And uh, and listen, could you get uh, – so I'll come in. I'll come in and I'll pretend to be drunk and you fire me because I'm drinking. And, and I said, okay, I'll fire you because you're drinking because I don't want to be fired because I'm a bad actor. I said, okay, I understand. So the next day, now word had gotten out somehow at Paramount that something unusual was about to happen on the taxi set. So I get a call. Tony Clifton is, oh, he wanted me to hire two, uh, two women to be <laughs> on, either side, on either side of him as he came in, and he would, be, he would be strutting back and forth, arm in arm with these two women. So I, I, called, I called casting person. I said, I need two extras, and this is what they have to do. Just come in, and then they'll go. I said, they said, fine. So he, so that afternoon, Tony Clifton is on stage. I am called. Tony Clifton is here. I go down. And he's drinking from a bottle, pretending to be drunk. He's got the two girls on either side of him. And he had come with presents for the cast, little wind-up animal, little wind-up toys that you, you know, little bunnies and, and squirrels that, that, that sort of walked back and forth. So we had all this going on back and forth across the state. And I come down, and, I, and now I'm playing a part, and I say, Tony, you're late, you're drunk, you're fired. Get off. He said, you can't fire me. I'm not leaving. I said, Tony, now I'm, I'm getting angry. I said, no, you've got to get off. To, I'm not, and he starts strutting back and forth. You can't fire me. This script stinks. You need to rewrite. He's throwing the script back and forth. And I say, call security. I go to the AD. I say, call security. And the, secu- the AD says, well, you know, that's uh, Andy Kaufman. No, it's not Andy Kaufman because I'm remembering my vow. <laughs> so now I look a little crazy. I said, I'm remembering my, my I'd given my word Oh, they're not the same people. And security comes. Security is an old guy, you know, and not ready to to manhandle somebody. And Tony Cl- and now the rehearsal is going. We're, we're about an hour and a half behind. Judd Hirsch and I now grab Tony. Judd's a very strong guy. We both grab him on either side, and we pick him up, and we take him out, and we sort of drop him on Melrose. Just drop them on the street and come back, and we go back to work. I go back to my office. 
And I am furious because I thought I could, he was going to go. I was going to fire him. Meantime, I'm back in my office. I get a phone call. It's, and the, my secretary says, it's Andy Kaufman. Pick up. And I, and I, he said, I said, where are you? He said, I'm at a phone booth on Melrose. I said, okay. He said, I want you, I want to say something. I said, what is it, Andy? He said, you were brilliant today. I said, brilliant? I wasn't brilliant. I was in a a psychodrama, and I was simply being angry and pissed off at this guy for going back. And he said, you were were brilliant. Thank you. Okay. Uh, We took all the Tony Clifton stuff, and we threw it out on the sidewalk. And I also got a call shortly after from... Army Archer to Variety, who said, uh, "Can I understand you fired Tony Clifton?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, yes. I, I don't know whether he knows. Who knows?" He said, "You fired you fired Tony Clifton," and he said, "What reason?" I said, "Army. Look, he's a young guy in the business. Let's not ruin his career this early. I'd rather not discuss the issue." He said, "Well, can I put it in?" And you fired? Yes. Just say we creative differences or something, and it went in. And and so, anyway, that was the the firing of 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 Tony Clifton. The next week, Andy came and showed up as if nothing had happened and nothing had gone. It's very funny. And so. did did you or uh, the crew ever get the attitude of like, oh, cut this shit, Andy? No, Andy. This is Andy was the most punctual, the most. The, the 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 knew his lines, knew exactly what he had to do. He was a pleasure to work for or, or work with, uh, I should say. Uh, Tony Clifton was the the other <laughs> character was was totally crazy. But Andy Andy was Andy was the nicest, sweetest young man in the world. And at that time he was also, you know, he was also reading The Great Gatsby at the Improv from sure. beginning to end. He was, he was working at a, at a delicatessen as a busboy. We would go see him. He would, and and uh, when he did uh, Tony Clifton at, uh, I forget what theater, I know it was Carnegie Hall at one time, but in L.A. the first time he did it, he had Zamuda play Tony Clifton. Clifton, and so at one point, Andy and Tony Clifton were on the same stage together, and of course, I was on the floor hysterical. That's right. when he took us all out for milk and cookies. So well, Andy, you, you, we, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say Gil knew him in the day from uh, from from the Improv, didn't you? You yeah, see him not not well, but you'd I mean, see him you'd see him would, early on. Yeah, he was the sweetest guy in the world. I mean, as and yeah. as Andy Kaufman, but. Uh, but at, at times you got he would he I remember when he uh, he got injured in that wrestling accident, which was all fake, and again he fooled me again, and I was sending you know I was sending doctors to his hospital to get you know hoping he could come back to work, <laughs> and, and he was and, and he had he had, he had uh, so he 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 liked playing with you that way, but. Uh, he himself was was just a sweet sweet man. Yeah, tell tell Gilbert about auditioning for from for Man on the Moon for the for the Kaufman movie. 
Because that's that's kind of funny. <laughs> well, all right. So they sent me the script, which is the the story of Andy Kaufman, and uh, they wanted me. And they had written that scene, that, right, where I had fired was was in there, because it had been a, it had been well discussed. And uh, the uh, director helped me with this. Oh, Milos Forman. Milos Forman. I met with him at a hotel and. Uh, uh, near Sunset Plaza Drive, and uh, he he asked me to read, and I said, you know, it's me. I mean, I you know, I don't one, I don't, I don't know how to read me. First of all, I'm not an actor, and second, I really don't want to do this. And he said, why? I said, well, I, I'm not sure. I like the script, and I'm not sure. And you have me cursing throughout the whole, and I said. You know, I, I I did curse when I lost my temper, but as a rule, those are not words that I use all the time. And I, he said, well, if you don't do the part, we're going to cast somebody very ugly to play you. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so it's my my taste as a as an actor, uh, uh, what an actor may have to go through. And I never did it. They hired somebody who. Uh, I, I I don't know if he followed through on that thread at all, but uh, I think they uh, hired Peter Bonners from okay. the Bob Newhart show. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, it it was Taxi was really a small part of a small part of the movie. Right. 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 And and you uh, created the Cosby Show. Well, yeah. That's not a <laughs> that seems not to be a, some dis- not a credit that that. That it, that has the luster it once once had. <laughs> no, I would say not. So now created the original Cosby Show too, the, the Bill Cosby yeah, Show. The, the, the first 60s. there were two Cosby shows. The one was yeah. the half hours, the gym teacher. Yeah, we've the talked one, about yeah. that. The Chet one character film show, uh, Chet Kincaid. Uh, uh, Bill liked. Uh, I don't know. He always named his own characters in a strange way. So he had Chet. Chet Kincaid, which was like I said, Bill. That's like a cowboy name, isn't it? He wanted that and. Once he wanted something, you couldn't talk him out of it. And the second was Huxtable, which I, again, questioned him about. But that seemed to work out all right. But, uh, uh, yeah, that was – but I, I, you know, that now the only thing question I, I'm asked is, you know, what do I know about Bill Cosby personally and, and, uh, and not much, so. That original Cosby show was hip, and we talked about it on the phone too. And it was a, it was it was bold for the time for not using a laugh track, no laugh track, and uh, one camera and yeah, some single great, camera, right? Some great people uh, guest stars on it. Which yeah, you mentioned. Frank and I were talking. It it was a lot of celebrity major names. Yeah. With... Well, Gilbert's excited that Elsa Lanchester was on. Yeah, Brian <laughs> Frankenstein. Uh, no, we had and. Uh, no, we had all kind. I mean, it was amazing. And uh, Henry Fonda, Dick Van Dyke. Yeah, I. Yeah. Th- what happened was the show was, uh, I think, number two in the ratings in the second year, and Bill goes on the Tonight Show and announces that he's quitting the show and moving to New York, which was the end of the show. The ratings plummeted after that, and uh, and that was it. And, and why it, why did he quit? Well. If I remember correctly, and I'm not sure of the time frame, but this was the time of the, this was right after the Manson murders. And his wife, I think, 
uh, really freaked out about that and wanted to get out of L.A. And I think there was a lot of that uh, among celebrities in Hollywood at the time. I don't mm-hmm. know that they all left uh, or, or could have, but I think that was his reason. And they went back to New York, and that was the end of the show. I didn't work for him again until the the second series. So that was, it was a funny show, and that had that great Quincy Jones theme song. I think, Bill prob- I think Bill probably uh, is responsible for that. No, I, I – and uh, – the first year, not knowing anything about half-hour comedy, I thought I had to write them all myself. And uh, it was only the second year I found out, you know, I could hire people and get help. Uh, and uh, and we did some funny, we did some funny shows on that. I remember the Henry Fonda one, which was written yeah. by Stan Daniels, who was then still at the Dean Martin show, where he did the the two of them in the elevator together. So we we experimented. We did some different things on that. You remember that show, Gil? It was a uh, good show. Oh, yeah, where he's Cosby the show. gym teacher. Yeah, yeah. Yes. It was very, yeah. very smart. Yeah. yeah, and I remember it was always like funny, like a major star would just pop up. Yeah. Yeah, I was talking to uh, Ed, including Moms Mabley and Manton Moreland. Yes. Showed up <laughs> one night when I was watching it on TV Land. Uh, we, we have this thing called Grill the Guest. Ed, these are just a couple of quick questions from listeners that they wrote in for you. While we uh, were talking? No, no, we prep it. We prepare. We, we, we ask for them ahead of time. I was going to say, okay. <laughs> no, this isn't live. Andrew Ford says, I'd like to ask about the origins of Stan Daniels uh, doing a Yiddish rendition of Old Man River that he would, <laughs> that he would do as a warm up. Is this, I, is this so? Yes, it's so. And, uh, <laughs> and it was brilliant. And I don't know where. I don't know where he got it from. It's original with him. It's original material. Because uh, <laughs> he was a, he wrote songs. He, he, he loved was musical a song, He was a songwriter. Right. right. Uh, and he uh, he wrote the uh, the book, lyrics and music to uh, to more than one uh, one show. And he was sort of I I don't know whether he was a cabaret entertainer or not. But he did this. We did this. Uh, on the Mary Tyler Moore show at every, at, during, <laughs> you know, between scenes, he would come out and he would do Old Man River uh, in Yiddish. I, I will not do it justice and can't. Uh, if you tried it right now, Gilbert, you would probably, you know, we could work on it together. You'd have a, you'd have five minutes that would play anywhere. Uh, I Could I, you try it? Do you know no. any Yiddish, Gil? No. <laughs> but could you... Oh. Uh, this is going to be very awkward. That's old fine. man river, that old man river, he just keeps trying. Who knows why he's trying? All right, that's about it. <laughs> that's <Okay>. really funny. <laughs> I, where that came from, I have no idea. But that's, <laughs> but but it, the lyrics work. Once you get, I don't know the lyrics, but if you if you transpose the lyrics, you're gonna get you're gonna get something very funny. And then I I read where there was a Broadway show called uh, Jews Telling Jokes, and oh, yeah. in the review, oh, yeah. I read where somebody was doing that routine, and I said I hope they got permission from Stan Daniels' uh, family to do it. Or maybe they didn't. It doesn't matter. But it was, I guess it's, it shouldn't be public domain. But it was Stan's uh, bit, and, uh, and uh, it was uh, always sensational whenever he did it. 
one of Stan's lines about me that he, that I'll that uh, that uh, he that he always said after every he didn't say after every writers meeting, but he always said Ed will not take yes for an answer. So that was <laughs> that's a funny line. Was, Did he write that great line on the Mary Tyler Moore show where Ted is fixed up with the old lady? Uh, excuse me, where Ted fixes Lou up with the old lady. I, and she and he says, I'm t- maybe you've seen me. Uh, she says, you look very familiar to me, Mr. Baxter. You know where I'm going with this? No, go ahead. And, she, and he says, well, you've probably seen me on television. And the old lady says, I, I don't I don't watch television. I have a fireplace. Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's, that stands. That stands joke. Absolutely. It's a great joke. And by the way, I should say that, you know, the the writing credits on the Mary Tyler Moore show are 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 not truly accurate of who did what, when and how and, and oh, why that's interesting. and where. Uh, they weren't individually written. There was a name on it. Uh, the policy that 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 Jim Brooks and Alan Burns started and that I try to maintain uh, was that that if the writer was assigned a script, whatever happened to that script, we didn't take his name off it. We didn't arbitrate it. We, we just, and he was always invited to the rewrite session. At the rewrite, you know, scripts would be turned inside out and redone, or, or and some, some of it was kept, some of it was not. And at the end of maybe a season, we probably didn't know ourselves who did what or when, uh, Though we pretty much we were pretty sure that that Jim Brooks had a hand in almost all of it, but we we were not we we were sort of uh, uh, we weren't we weren't trying to none of us were trying to take special credit for what we had done or what we hadn't. Mm-hmm. Done. And you created a show called Mister President. Oh, God help! Oh, you're gonna go. Well, you're gonna why, go yes. there. Why would you? Why would you bring that up? He doesn't want to talk about a show <laughs> on a comedy show. Why would you talk about that one? <laughs> With Academy this is supposed Award. to be about comedy writing, and <laughs> and you're supposed to be funny, and you want me to be funny, and then you bring up you bring up something. I'll just keep so, filibustering until maybe we're out of. Uh, don't we have any legend, more questions? Wait a minute. What happened to the questions? What happened to the questions from the audience? Academy Award winner George C. Scott. Oh who my God. Patton. Yeah. Well, this was look. He's one of the great actors of the universe of, in his time, but his time was not when I was working with him. By the way. So, uh, uh, okay, here's another quick so one. Wait, Go wait. Ahead. What was the problem? <laughs> Trying to let him off the hook. What was, what the, pro- was the problem you were having with George I'll Seastown? tell you one problem I had with him. Okay. okay. I won't tell you the real problem because that's going to that's gonna get too serious. But uh, Please tell me the real I'll problem. I'll tell you the – no, no, maybe, maybe we're off. Did uh, he drink? Well, he did. I don't know whether he was drinking when we – I drank <laughs> at that point. <laughs> I don't care whether he was drinking. <laughs> I I hope I was drinking because there was no other way I was going to get through that. But I remember one one, and I was afraid of him, obviously. Or I mean, Dorsey Scott, and uh, we uh, we we had he was in the Oval. The set was the Oval Office, and we had three scenes in which he which he did all did each one of them behind the desk. 
So after the run-through, I went up to him, and in the most, not even polite, I mean, in the most syncophantic way, I could say, <laughs> uh, Mr. Scott, I think I always called him Mr. Scott or Mr. Scott. I couldn't think of George as a possible name for him. Mr. Scott, uh, you think in the, the last scene, in the third scene, you could stand because, you know, the, you, you've been behind the desk for the whole show. I mean, I put it in certain. Well, he went absolutely ballistic. And uh, I think at that point I realized uh, that this was, we, this was not going to be working out too well for either one of us. And, of course, it, it didn't. And strangely enough, one of the best reviews I ever got was for that show. And I, it taught me a lot because I knew where we were headed. I knew, I knew how much trouble I was in. And, I, and this said something about television criticism that if he couldn't spot it, I don't know what he could spot because this was going directly into the toilet with me with me and Mr. Scott uh, together. And I don't think of him as a comedian. I don't, I mean, a, a wonderful actor. No, he's been, he's an a, actor of a generation. Enjoy, wait a minute. In, in, in uh, Flim the, Flam Man. What? He's well, a funny Flim, in a movie called a The Flim Flam Man. What, what is it he in, uh, in the, the Kubrick, Kubrick movie? Is oh, it? that's right. Strange Love. Strange is there Love. anybody funnier in Strange that's Love true. Than, that's, than George that's, C. Scott? That's true. That's true. He's a he great, just didn't, he didn't appear in a lot of comedies. But that didn't stop me. Yeah. <laughs> remember, that's a bold, bold move on your part. No, well, remember, this was Fox. This was the first year of the new network. So they wanted names. and Oh, that's right. It was Fox. It was Fox. And so right, they wanted right. names and they wanted ratings and they wanted to make a splash. And, and this seemed like a good idea at the time. Like, you know, like, uh, like, uh, like Mr. Smith. Anything that I named with a... <laughs> Anything, anything I name with a mister in front of you should stay as far away from as possible. Okay, here's another quick one from a listener. Uh, John okay. Shetler, how did that iconic John Charles Walters uh, tag come about? And do people say goodnight, Mr. Walters, to you from time to time as a no, reference no, to that? No, nobody does that. Uh, well, it's been off the air for a long time. But uh, I, I, I got a reputation, I suppose, for mumbling. Uh, I just mumbled at certain times. Either I couldn't think of an answer or I just, it was just a, a habit. So uh, we needed a uh, sort of, I, what is it called? It's not a logo, but we needed like a, a, like a sign-off. or A, a sign-off that nobody yeah. had done before, really. We were, we were the first to do that, I think. And, and we were looking for an idea. And, and, and so uh, Jim... I think it was Jim Brooks. We were talking about Jim Brooks said, you know, you should do your uh, whatever I was doing. And <laughs> so we got a very perky uh, young lady who who I think was our script supervisor. She had a very perky. I don't mean this in any demeaning way. She just said it was a very personable young lady and and had this voice. So she did. Good night, Mr. Walters. And I uh, and. I did the voice, and we hired this really very handsome, tall, gray-haired actor to do the Mr. Walters walking, walking off, and that was uh, that was it. And uh, I never, I never apply. I never 
I never asked for any money for that. So I think I may have. I wonder what my case is. There's. Yeah, all those reruns. <laughs> I think after. I think I should. So <laughs> you remember I, that Gill? It was the sign-off at the end of Taxi. If and anybody from After is listening, please, you know, look that up and see if they can send me a check. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean a dime for every time that got played. Oh my god! Add up, Ed. Oh my gosh! Well, this is well. All right, I, you know, probably a statute of limitations. We'll here, put but. the word out. Yeah, let's but, a- okay. Let, let's ask about the book as we wrap up. The Grouchy Historian, which you wrote with our oh, friend Ed. Can you Azzer. hold it up a little bit? I'm gonna, no one's going to see it. <laughs> I'll hold it up. <laughs> oh, there's no, it's just from me. Yeah, yeah. Tell well, us I about got how my you- copy here too. So I know it's. I know it's. It's. Uh, it's uh, the least uh, important thing here. And but uh, let me read the title one more time: The Grouchy Historian, an old-time lefty defends her constitution against right-wing hypocrites and nutjobs by Ed Weinberg. Two old-time lefties in this yes, case. Ed, in this case. Ed yeah. Ashton. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, but his it's his picture on the cover. That's right. And it's his, uh, he's got top billing. But he's saying you did the grunt work and the lion's share of the uh, the heavy lifting. That's true. That's true. I'm not going to, I'm not going <laughs> to pretend I didn't at this point. Uh and it's got jokes in it too, and there's some. Yes, humor. it's funny, and you read it, which is very nice. I appreciate that. And uh, it started. Well, it's, very, be- it's educational, and it started uh, during the uh, election, uh, during the campaign, and uh, and just I just got tired of hearing conservatives and Republicans just talking about the Constitution as not only as if they owned it, but as if they wrote it. And I said, they can't be right. They can't be. They're not right about anything else. Why are they right? Why did? So I really not knowing much about the origins of the Constitution and the history, I began, began doing some research and I did a couple of chapters and uh, Ed, Ed uh, gave me notes and comments and we sent it off to uh, an agent or a lawyer and they got it to Simon and Schuster. We got a book deal, and now I was faced with the problem of having to actually write a whole book. But the more I got into it, the more uh, more excited I got because I just found one thing after another, and you just start peeling back information, and you just you know one thing. Uh, so you you just read a little bit about uh, about. Uh, uh, James Madison, and then you say, "Wow, this is—he's not a—he's not a right-wing conservative. He's not a states' rights guy. He's not mm-hmm. a—he's not one of the—he's not Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz isn't right about uh, about the Second Amendment. He isn't right about the separation of the church and state. The left, uh, because I'm not—I I don't think of myself as a Democrat, but I, I do think of myself as a leftist in some way." Uh, we're closer to these people than anybody knows, and there's some something here that needs to get out about what these people are saying about our Constitution and our history and the people who made it, and that's where the book is. And well, it's fascinating. The Second Amendment, which is uh, very unfortunately too timely these days. Yes, uh, yes. Was was it is a chapter I'm really proud of because I just didn't know what I was going to find when I got into it, but 
There is no fundamental right in the Constitution, in the Second Amendment, to own a gun. They're not saying that. But you, you guys make it very clear that it's that it's, it's, it's about a, a it's state clearly mi- referring to state militia. Always about a state militia. Yeah. This whole con- what Madison and, wrote, and and the, the first draft of Madison's Second Amendment, which which was really the smoking gun, no no pun intended, uh, is it seems to have been neglected or ignored. And we make the case that the country was founded on gun control. Uh, which I won't go into because it's not yeah. a funny story, and I don't want to lose Gilbert here. So, Shay's rebellion is not going to get too many jokes. Oh, he's interested in Shay's rebellion. <laughs> no, he's I will, not. I, 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 will I say know this. him well enough to know he doesn't <laughs> give a hoot about Shay's rebellion. It's, it's, so. It turns out to be a history book, but a history book with a sense of humor. It, re- it reads a little like Howard Zinn, but with jokes. It's. It's very well, accessible. A, well, Howard Zinn is a great compliment, and uh, thank you for that. But there are there are out and out flat, you know, one liners in there, because the editor said, you know, you can't go too many pages without, you know, without getting a laugh. Sort of like uh, no, it's like yeah. a network uh, note in, in that sense. It's legitimately funny, and it makes its points very well. And also, how much they were motivated by self interest. That's another aspect of the chat. It yeah. doesn't. It doesn't denigrate them at all to no, pull back no. the curtain and say, it, look, these guys had they had skin in the game. They were they were landowners. They, they were slave owners. They, Absolutely. Land speculation was the was, you know, was the big occupation or preoccupation of the time. And they were all speculators in land and they were all debt speculators and they all had vested interest in in the Constitution. It's one of the points that's made without without at the same time uh, making the the uh, equal case that they were uh, they were uh, brilliant geniuses and, uh, uh, and men of the enlightenment and are and the first real americans it's enlightening it's educational and it's a, it's a page turner i mean i read a lot of books for the show and some are some are less rewarding than others but this one was fun Thank you. It was it it made history fun, and it wasn't preachy. It was it was uh, well. It points, you know, and I do it was entertaining. We we do go after Ann Coulter and that uh, I enjoyed especially <laughs> Ted Cruz, and Cruz and 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 Carson and Scalia and and yeah, all of them and all of them and of yeah. course Scalia, one of the great one of the great myths of our time that he knew what he was talking about. <laughs> Let me ask you this about Ed um, and put you, on, put you on the spot is Ed contends that, that Lou Grant, which was a show that was doing well in the ratings at the time may have been yanked off the air because of, uh, of his politics. I, I think you- that had a lot to do with it. I, I'm not that I, I'm familiar with the circumstances. I, uh-huh. I was not at MTM at the time. Uh, Alan Burns uh, went on to do Lou Grant. Uh, uh, Jim Brooks and I had moved on to do Taxi. Uh, I think Jim still had some connection to Lou Grant uh, and was one of the creators of it. But uh, Ed did run into trouble because of his stand on El Salvador and yeah. his de- and his defense of the Sandinistas, the Sandinistas which is a yeah. very, very uh, uh, serious and dangerous subject at the time. There was a lot of network interference on all on all levels. That was the age of uh, family values. I know we had lots of censorship problems on on Phyllis, uh, and I don't remember what 
So that was CBS. Paley was still there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure there was blowback from the from the uh, sponsors. Uh, he was uh, he was very public in his his position at the time, and uh, from what I understand, there was no reason to uh, yeah cancel the show. It certainly wasn't canceled because of its ratings. And it was yeah, it was well, in the top ten, I believe. And it was a well received and well regarded uh, classy network show. That interesting. I admire him greatly. You know, he put. I was saying to Gilbert before we 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 put the mics on. I mean, he's a guy who's always put his money where his mouth is. Yes, he's advocated for teachers, advocated for unions, uh, for for HIV patients, for for Holocaust survivors. I mean, he's. And it's aut- a great leg- autism as autism well. Autism now. Autism. It's a great yeah. legacy. Yeah. I mean, and we, we had him on here. We had a lot of laughs with him, but there's, there's just a, a, t- a lot to admire about the man. Right. Here's the book, Gil. Yeah. The grouchy historian, an old-time lefty, defends the Constitution against right-wing hypocrites and nutjobs. Thank a f- you. A fun read, Ed. Thank you. Now, Thank you. and and... After we get off the air, you're going to have to tell me your extra George C. Scott story. I will tell. I will tell it to you off. Yeah. I'll tell it to okay. you off the off air. Off the air. Okay. <laughs> I'll tell you my Sherman Helms- you- I'll tell you my Sherman Helmsley story off the air too. Okay. <laughs> and we'll, we'll we'll figure out if you guys were actually in shul together. Yes. Yeah. Be off the air. I swear they me- used your name to lure me into a Purim play. <laughs> Yeah, in some temple in L.A. Wilshire Boulevard Temple. That's some temple. It was a big, uh, a big temple on on Wilshire Boulevard. If you were never out here, how they, you know, there's only one of you. So I remember the name. <laughs> yes. And they said they said Gilbert a- is going to be working on this poor and play, and uh, we want you to work on it too. I said, well, sure. If he's going to work on it, I'll work on it. <laughs> And, and uh, I said, I, all I my big contribution was I said, put the rabbi in a dress, and you'll get a big, <laughs> you'll get a big laugh, which they did, and that was it. I figured I got my laugh. I'm done. What you did after that was your business. But apparently, I, I never heard a thing. It's shocking. You're such a pious <laughs> Jew. You're such an observant Jew. I never saw you in shul, so I said, I wonder where. Uh, yeah. Well, there could be two of you. But anyway, that's the story. I'm sticking by that story. Okay, Ed. All right. Uh, I'm Gilbert Gottfried. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. And this has been another episode of Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. And we have been talking to the man who thought I wasn't good enough to be in Mr. Smith. No, no, I never <laughs> said that. <laughs> never said you weren't good. I, said, may, I may have said you weren't right. TV. You weren't right. I probably said you weren't right. <laughs> I never said people weren't good enough. Uh, where, where, where it started a sexual abusing, a sexual harassment uh, orangutan. Uh, orangutan. Orangutan, yeah. orangutan. Yes, yeah. yes. And this was fascinating and fun. Thanks for thanks for doing it. Oh, thank thanks. you, the great Ed Weinberger. Thank you, guys. Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast is produced by Dara Gottfried and Frank Santa Padre, with audio production by Frank Verderosa. 
Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to Paul Rayburn, John Murray, and John Fodiatis. Especially Sam Giovanco and Daniel Farrell for their assistance. 